my hope that tonight we will finish the wisdom literature, which means that we'll be doing Proverbs tonight, and Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. So, um, but obviously we'll start with, um, if that seems rather a lot, um, you'll, you'll, you'll see that it is quite viable. Um, so anyway, first of all then we will uh, start with Proverbs, and of course that means therefore if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 29, where I will read this 1 Kings 4, 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Haman, Calcol, and Dada, the sons of Mahal. And if you're wiser than them, you're wise, I'm telling you. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. And I just read that to give you the, um, you know, the basis in the Old Testament for the fact that when um, the book of Proverbs claims to have been you know, the Proverbs of Solomon, that, that is exactly what it is. It is the writings of King Solomon. And if we can say that last time we looked at Psalms, and that being primarily, though not exclusively, the work of King David, then uh, we're going to see Proverbs, uh, most of it at any rate, and, uh, in, and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs are the writings of King Solomon. So we've got very much a family affair here, very, you know, David, Psalms and Solomon, the rest, as it were. So um, anyway, um, so the book of Proverbs, and uh, so we'll turn to it now. you'll see as we get to the end there are just some bits and pieces that weren't written by him but uh, it is the well as, as we get in the very first verse the Proverbs of Solomon and uh, what you actually find in the book the layout that the actual Proverbs per se don't actually start till chapter 10 um, the the first nine chapters are, are by you know you get a prologue and you get a kind of a general introduction you know like the the, the purpose and the theme of it and uh, so what we're going to do is, um, you know, just, just start off by um, actually reading the first seven verses because this, this is very much the prologue, the theme. It states what the whole book is about. And uh, then, then from there on we're going to break it down a bit and um, at least up until chapter 10 we're actually going to go through it chapter by chapter. So, so we'll certainly begin by reading the first seven verses. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance, for understanding proverbs and parables and sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And that is really what you know, sets the scene for the whole book. That in a sense it's going to outline in very practical terms the fact that there are two ways of living. 
you can live according to the wisdom of God, as written down in the scriptures, or you can be a fool. And throughout Proverbs, that is the comparison. The comparison between the fool, who rejects wisdom and discipline and the Lord, and the wise man who lives in subjection to the teaching of the Bible. And uh, in the, the rest of chapter 1, um, in, in verse 8 to 19, um, you have there a kind of, it, it starts by warning people not to forsake the instruction that they got from their parents. Now, this would be working on the assumption that the Jewish kids were being taught the law by their parents as they grew up. And, um, and from verses 8 to 19, that starts by saying, don't, don't reject, don't forsake the discipline and the instruction that you had when you were younger. And then it, it gives a warning against being enticed by others into violent crime. And that, that's the first, the first folly that wisdom, you know, here, that Proverbs deals with. You know, being enticed when evil men entice you, specifically, into violence. And, and violence is always a sign of absolute folly. Violence is the exact opposite of the loving kindness and the righteousness uh, and mercy of God. And then in, in verse 20 to 33, um, it draws in a picture that it carries on uh, more or less throughout the book. And it warns the readers not to reject being wise, and it personifies wisdom as being a woman. And another kind of comparison comes out, and it's almost, if, if getting a good wife is a good thing, a good wife is a marvellous partner, but nevertheless, wisdom is the best partner yet. And wisdom is now pictured as a woman who is desirable. All right. Now just hold that, because it comes back to that later. Then in chapter 2, um, it outlines the benefits of being wise, all the blessings that comes from it. So after all, if you live according to the law of God, if you live within God's will, much blessing comes. And, um, and then you get warning against the next great folly, and it's the adulteress. The adulteress. And, you know, so you've got a kind of sex and violence here. And it's interesting that whenever you see breakdown in society, whenever sin and rebellion runs out of control, you'll always find that intense immorality and violence are a sign of a civilization becoming a decadent one. And that's, that's so what we're seeing in, in our country today. I mean, sex and violence, all the concern about sex and violence on TV. And it's interesting that the, the first two direct follies that Proverbs warns against are those two things. Sex, not sex per se, because, um, you know, sort of like Proverbs, and certainly when we come onto the Song of Songs later, the Bible exalts sexuality in its rightful place. But where you get promiscuity and violence, there you always have a society that is beginning to, to break down. And um, in chapters 3 and 4, it carries on in a similar theme we've already seen, it lists all the benefits of wisdom. Obviously, we, you know, we can't read all these verses, it, it would take too long. And uh, again, but it brings in the theme that wisdom is compared to a desirable woman. And in the same way 
that uh, obviously, you know, sort of like here, he's saying in the same way that a bloke might desire a woman, then desire wisdom. Because wisdom is going to be a better partner for you than any woman can be. I.e., to end up with a partner but to not be wise is folly. You know, it's no good at all. Wisdom above all things is what we need. And of course, at the end of the day, it's interesting that in Corinthians, that Paul talks about Jesus being made unto us wisdom and sanctification. Because when we're talking about wisdom, we're talking about the outworking of the Christian life. I mean, when Paul says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you. This, you know, here, in this book, we're dealing with the practicalities of what living in the righteousness of God is all about. As we've already seen, promiscuity is out, violence is out. And obviously there are many, many other things as well. And uh, here again in chapters 3 and 4, you get this picture of wisdom being a woman who you really desire. What the Bible is saying, get wisdom above everything else, get wisdom, because then everything else in your life will fall into place. So the point is that what it's saying here the number one priority is to be living in obedience to the will of God. If we do that, everything else will fall into place. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's what Jesus said. Exactly the same principle. Take care of your priorities. What is the priority? The number one priority is being right with God in an ongoing way. That's the number one priority. To be right there, everything else will take care of itself. And uh, then in chapter 5, it, it, it moves back to um, severe warnings against adultery, specifically now. Um, adultery being a very particular form of licentiousness, because obviously single people can be immoral, and that is wrong. But when married people are being immoral, then this is sin doubled and trebled and, you know, it gets worse and worse and worse. And it talks about the, the absolute importance of being captivated by your own wife and not getting in the position where you end up being captivated by other people's wives. Let's actually read verse 15 to 20 because these are, are goodies. Um, chapter 5 and uh, verse, verse 15. And it's, the imagery here is nice, it's subtle, get, you know, get hold of it. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Because that meant everything, you know, if you had your own well, your own system, you know, sort of your own private water supply, that was great. And if you did, you didn't need to go and get someone else's, did you? Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone and never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. Now, can you see the imagery there? The Lord is not prude. He's not a prude. He never has been. The church introduced prudery. The sinful heart introduces prudery. All right? May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. And for a married man, if that's the case, he's not going to wander, is he? May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the breast of another man's wife? Now, what a lovely summing up of what marriage is all about there. And how terrible it is, in the light of that, 
when that is the blessing of marriage, how terrible it is when one ends up going after people outside of marriage. What a dreadful thing adultery is. And, uh, and, and so those verses, they sum up marriage so nicely. But here, the real warning against adultery. Because adultery attacks and destroys something that is so wonderful. And, you know, sort of like, obviously, it's something that the Lord really hates. I mean, not that, obviously, there can be forgiveness and restoration after adultery. Of course there can. But, you know, but the point is this beautiful picture here about being so captivated by your own wife uh, that you're not going to end up straying um, after outsiders. And again, back to the image that wisdom is here being compared to the wife of your youth. So can you see all the way through, it's saying in the same way that in a marriage before the Lord, your wife is, is, is the most precious thing in your life. In the same way, wisdom is a woman like that. And that wisdom, living according to the holiness and the righteousness and the written word of God, that must also be the most precious thing in our life. Can you see the imagery all the way through? That the wisdom of God is being presented to us as a woman whom you desire as much as if it is the wife of your youth. That is the, the kind of the picture that we've, we've, we've got here. Now, moving on into chapters six and, uh, six and seven, um, there are warnings uh, against various things here. Um, first of all, there's a warning against uh, promising more than you can deliver. And uh, that's, that, that's the fool who does that. Um, promising more than you can deliver. Robert Lee would have summed that up in this way. Words, words, words. You see, all talk and no action. It's so easy to say, oh, I'll do this and I'll do that, and you can rely on me for this, and you can rely on me for that, and then not to come through. That is the way of the fall. And uh, it's better to not promise something <laughs> and be true to that promise <laughs> than to actually promise something and not come through on it. So there, there are warnings there against promising more than you can actually come up with. Then there's a warning against laziness. Now there's a lot in the Proverbs about laziness. And, uh, you know, it seemed to me that it would be really good as we were going through this for me to really bring that out, but I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> then then, then it, it moves on, and, uh, and it's, it, it, it rants a little bit against scoundrels and villains. And, uh, you know, scoundrels and villains. I mean, we all know what scoundrels and villains are. I mean, you can, you can walk through many a street at night and you can see the scoundrels and villains, can't you? But the warning is that uh, it's, it, it, it can in some circumstances be easy to be drawn in by the scoundrels and the villains. i give you an example. Obviously, one might be walking down the road on your way to the prayer evening or on your way here tonight to the Bible study, and maybe you walk past a particularly rowdy pub, and, and there it is, full of scoundrels and villains. And, of course, there's light years between you and them. I mean, you know, to contemplate, oh, the Bible warning me about... I mean, how could... I wouldn't even go through the doors, all right? And in those circumstances, yes, the, you know, your, your average committed Christian is quite safe from scoundrels and villains. But then, just suppose at work, suppose your boss is a scoundrel and a villain. Or suppose the bloke you work next to is a scoundrel and a villain. Or supposing you get a new next door neighbour and you get in with them, and that's a good thing to do, because how are they going to hear the gospel otherwise? But, you, but they are scoundrels and villains. Then how easy it is to end up bit by bit being drawn in. Because what comes into play then is fear of man, you see? So, it's a good warning against villains and scoundrels. 
Um, I actually want to read some, some verses here from, um, from verse 16. And because it does, you know, after the scoundrels and villains bit, then you get these verses. And uh, these are good, these are good. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Now, in Hebrew literature, when you get this, there are six things, blah, 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 and then seven, or you get the statement of a number followed by the same number plus one. This is always emphasis. That's a, it's a, a literary uh, technique for really emphasising something. So it's saying here the Lord really hates these things. Right. And they are haughty eyes. God hates that. Haughty eyes. Pride. Looking down on people. God hates that because he, he doesn't look down on anyone. He is humble. God is himself humble. He hates haughtiness. A lying tongue. Because he's the one true God. Jesus is the truth. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He hates a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. There's violence again. A heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. And of course the thing is that that will be feet then that are slow to run into holiness, you see. A false witness who pours out lies. That's slander. And a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. That's a very salutary list, that is. That's, that's good every now and then just to weigh ourselves up according to that. It, it, it just reminds us how much we need the Lord's grace in our lives to make us different to that. Because one way or the other, that, that, that's the evil heart in its natural condition. That's the, the old man, if you like. And, uh, you know, but the Lord has given us a new life. And so I'll just read those verses out because they're, they're key verses, I think, in this book. Um, and then, you know, sort of like for the rest of uh, chapter six, uh, five, uh, 6 and then into 7, you, 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 you get, you know, more warnings against adulteress and the loose woman. And, and again, back to the theme there of infidelity, unfaithfulness. It's, it's a dreadful thing and, and the Lord hates it. And uh, chapters 8 to 9, again, we, we, we go back to the imagery that wisdom in these chapters is personified as a woman. Again, all, all the time, this, this kind of picture. And it develops and that the woman goes through the streets and she's crying out for people to listen to her. So, so we've got this picture, wisdom, beautiful woman, and she's going through the streets and she's crying out for people to listen to her. Then the picture grows and another aspect comes in and another um, enters the scene, a woman who represents folly. So the woman who represents wisdom is going through the streets crying out for people to listen to her. A woman who is folly enters the scene and she's a prostitute. She's pictured as a prostitute, plying her trade, luring people in. And, and of course, that, that's how folly works in our hearts, doesn't it? We're enticed. J James talks about that, that we're enticed by our sin. Eve was enticed by Satan. And, uh, you know, sort of like this picture here about the prostitute. You know, sort of maybe, you know, a man walking down the street and there suddenly there's a woman. Only she's not wisdom crying out to be heard. She's folly. She's a prostitute. And she's luring you in and saying, here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity. And entices him in. And of course, that, 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 that is how sin works. That is how folly, foolishness works. And, um, you know, and, and so you've got this picture. And, and of course, the implication is for us, with these two women crying out to us, who do we go with? Wisdom 
or folly. The beautiful woman who represents faithfulness or the prostitute. Can you see what I mean? And of course, one of the themes throughout the Old Testament was that Israel, in her going after idols and refusing to be faithful to God, is likened to, to a wife who goes whoring. You know, spiritual prostitution. Spiritual adultery, that, that's the picture. Paul uses the imagery that we are betrothed to Christ. And that one day the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to happen. The marriage of the church to Jesus. Was it last week, the week before? That's what we were talking about, wasn't it? And the idea that, that in our unfaithfulness, when we go after sin, there's a sense in which we, we're prostituting ourselves. We're betrothed to Jesus. And yet being enticed away from him by sin and folly. And of course that's always the question, that's always the decision we have to make. Which woman do I go with? Do I go with wisdom? Or am I going to be enticed by folly? And that's the picture language. Now that, that is so to speak the prologue and the introduction. Solomon has set the scene. We haven't actually got to the proverbs themselves. What we've got so far is, is the whole introduction about wisdom. And the actual proverbs of Solomon, because as we're going to see there are a couple of chapters at the end that are proverbs of other people. But the actual proverbs of Solomon now run from chapter 10 right through to chapter 29. Um, and there's 534 of them. So of course we hit the same problem as we did with Psalms. We can no more go through each proverb than we could go through each psalm. I mean, there's just no way. So all we can do is to have a little dippy-dippy, and that is what we are going to do. Uh, but as, as we come to this section from chapter 10 to 29, it's actually divided into to three sections. You get from chapter 10 uh, to halfway through chapter 22, and uh, that, that's designated the Proverbs of Solomon. And uh, then there's a section in the middle, uh, from the middle of verse 24, uh, from the middle of chapter 22 to the middle of chapter 24 when it's just the sayings of the wise, although it's still Solomon. And then there's a third section as well, uh, which runs from chapter 25 to 29, when it says more proverbs of Solomon copied by the men of Hezekiah the king. So the point is it's all the proverbs of Solomon, but it's been put together from you know th three different sources, you know, different probably times when he was actually writing. But uh, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't matter too much about that. The point is that, that for, from where we've got to, um, in chapter 10 through till chapter 29, we've got 534 proverbs. And that is why it's called the book of Proverbs. Now, there, there's, there's, there's no way that we can go through it in any comprehensive way, like with Psalms. I mean, I, I can't find any way to break them down. I mean, one could say, well, the Proverbs cover these areas and then list the areas. But the problem is that you probably find that they cover 534 areas because there are 534 Proverbs. So I can't think of any systematic way to break them down at all. So uh, therefore, it seems to me that we would just have a, a dippy, dippy, dippy. And uh, so I've just picked out I mean, you know, to a certain, you know, at random, I mean, obviously, as the Holy Spirit led me as I was preparing, of course, um, you know, if I got the pendulum out, and no, I've just picked a few proverbs. It seems good to me, in the Holy Spirit, as it says in Acts, um, to go through. So, so let's, let's go to chapter 11, and uh, fundamentally, I mean, we'll, we'll pick one or two out of most chapters, but not all chapters. So, just, just to get an idea of, of, of proverbs... Chapter 11, 
and uh, verse, verse 12 to 13. <clears throat> a man who lacks judgment derides his neighbour, but a man of understanding holds his tongue. A gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy man keeps a secret. So, quite good, like that. Um, verse 22. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. There you go. And, you know, I mean, obviously, I mean, you know, Maury, that applies to men as well, but, but, but you know, the sort of, obviously you can get men who aren't discreet, but, uh, you know, sort of like, but, but having beauty without discretion, no good at all. Verse 24, one man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. See, I'm on a completely different line, that one. I'm, I'm just picking out proverbs that I think are good, you know? And I'm, I'm with that so far. You know, so we've had about, you know, sort of like knowing how to keep a confidence and not gossiping and, you know, not, 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 not slagging people off all the time. You know, that, that's, you know, and, and discretion. That, that's, that's all to do with the tongue. And then we've got one about being generous because Jesus said, giving it should be given. Good measure, shaking together, pressed down, running over. And, uh, you know, you can't, you can't outgive God. But another withholds unduly. There is a time to withhold. Um, not when the boxes are around. <laughs> no, no, joke, joke. Um, another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. And, uh, you know, so, again, you know, sort of Paul in Corinthians, he uses the picture when it comes to giving. Uh, you know, be it to whatever, be it giving to the church, be it giving to the poor, what, just the whole thing about our money being the laws. And, you know, he uses the picture of the farmer sowing. And, of course, the point is, the more seed you sow, the bigger the harvest that comes back. But the less seed you sow, the smaller the harvest that comes back. And, and of course, that's a picture there, you know, that in our giving, what we're doing is we're sowing seed as unto the Lord. Not, you know, not necessarily that, you know, sort of like that, that means that you're going to be either, you know, get richer and richer and richer because you're giving. I mean, that would be a wrong motive. But the point is, if we're giving generously... Um, and sensibly at the leading of the Lord, then, then well, you know, we needn't fear that poverty is going to come upon us. And, and certainly we're going to be blessed in, in many ways, and, and, and certainly spiritual, you know, and, and that's more important than money anyway. But, but there, generosity. Right, uh, ch chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Now, we, we know that's, that's true in our hearts, don't we? You know, like when... A legitimate correction comes along, or some of us we react before we've even found out whether the correction is legitimate or not. And of course, the tragedy is that you can have a reaction that you always end up rejecting the correction because you reject correction full stop. So you never end up corrected. But obviously, it is daft to react to correction because if someone corrects, then we've got to look at that correction and weigh it up to find out whether it's legitimate. But, you know, he who hates correction is stupid. And we know sometimes, you know, that when that reaction of comes up in our hearts at correction, we know that that is the stupidity of our hearts. We know it, even as it's happening. Number four, a wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a disgraceful wife is like decay in his bones. It's true. No question about it. Absolutely true. Number ten. 
Belinda will like this one. I've, I, you know, I've put this one in because I've, you know, I, I don't want to upset anyone. This, this, is, this is for the ladies. Right? Verse 10. A righteous man cares for the needs of his animal, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. So there you are, the wise man is going to be nice to animals. See? Cruelty to animals. It's all right to eat them. But cruelty to animals. Is, um, no animals, not your wife. See? So it's good to be, you know, wise men. I mean, cruelty to animals is not on. As I say, you can eat them, but you can't be cruel to them. Uh, chapter 10. As I say, the ladies will like that, and of course that will... will they, they won't be quite so upset at the one I said about, you know, sort of like them being a decay in our bones if they're not of noble character. Because of course they are, aren't they? All, all, all the wives in this fellowship. Right, okay, I've done my crawling for tonight. Um, First verse 16, of noble character, dear, honest. <laughs> yes, for, for verse 16. A fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent... Don't, don't laugh when I'm giving a Bible study. It's, it puts me off. Pack it in. A fool shows his annoyance at once. Joke, again, everyone, joke. But but no, not, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. Again, doesn't doesn't that encapsulate something that is so? I mean, that is life transforming, isn't it? Can you you know to to be brought from immediate showing of annoyance, and of course that's that's lack of self control because the fruit of the spirit is patience, isn't it? It's long suffering, and um, you know, and a, a prudent man overlooks an insult. Because the thing is that when you get people who show their annoyance immediately, they'll end up annoyed, even when there's nothing to be annoyed at. Because there are so many misunderstandings in life, aren't there? So when you've got someone who's an annoyed person, an irritable person, someone who's quick to take offence or quick to, you know, to get the ump or something. Now the point is, they'll end up often getting the hump, even when there's nothing to get the hump about, because They've misunderstood, because often there are just misunderstandings. So the point is that, there is, that you know, they get the hump first and ask questions later, if you see what I mean. Whereas, can you see here, the prudent man overlooks an insult. Now one could say, if someone's insulting you, well maybe there's cause to be annoyed there. But the prudent man isn't even going to get annoyed at an insult. He'll overlook it. Can you see the difference there? That folly, sin, blurts out any time, anywhere, any place. There's a joke there, but I'm not going to go into it now. Um, and uh, it's called the Martini Principle. Um, and so, so sin just splurts out all over the place. Whereas wisdom, the fruit of the Spirit, is, is controlled. Can you see? And, you know, in James, he, he says that the anger of man does not do the work of God. And, and, of course, it can't at all. So there's a proverb against anger there. And very wise. Oh, to be able to be insulted... But to be prudent, you can overlook it. Excellent. Um, chapter 13, verse 1. A wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a mocker does not listen to rebuke. I thought I'd better get mockers in here. And, uh, but a mocker does not listen to rebuke. Verse 3. He who guards his lips guards his life, but he who speaks rashly will come to ruin. And again, that's true, isn't it? Sin is a motor mouth, isn't it? Whereas again, James, which, I mean, James, when we did the book of James, one of the things we noticed is that, that, that his style 
was very much the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. You know, there's something very proverby about the Epistle of James when we did it. And, uh, you know, and, and, and there, James, James talks about being slow to speak, but quick to hear. And that's, that's what it's saying here. Speak rashly, and it, it will bring you to ruin. You'll certainly spend a lot of your time apologising if you speak rashly. There's no, no question of that. Chapter 14, and uh, verse 15. A simple man believes anything, but a prudent man gives thought to his steps. Now, in, 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 in these days of the charismatic renewal, and, and I'm all for the gifts of the Spirit, but nevertheless, this is a proverb that um, could well be underlined in, in, in the hearts and minds of many, many Christians. A simple man believes anything. It's not wisdom. Um, one, one sort of, that I've, you know, I've often, you know, sort of like played around with, uh, you know, is, 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 is the idea of doing a series on, on doubtful faith and faithful doubt. Because a lot of Christians think that faith is everything. It's not actually. Part of the Christian life is doubt. Because the point is, if God hadn't given us the capacity to doubt, we wouldn't be able to test things to find out whether they were something we ought to have faith in. You see what I mean? And yet some Christians, they throw doubt out the window completely, as if doubt per se is wrong. It's a, it's a sin to doubt God. But it's a positive virtue to doubt deception. You see what I mean? And, uh, you know, so really what we've got here is that there is faithful doubt. There's a time to doubt. And there's doubtful faith. You know, sort of like, the, you know, some Christians think that it's kind of virtuous to have believed five impossible things every morning before breakfast. <laughs> That's not faith. That's incredulity. That is, in the terms of the Proverbs, being simple. But in other words, being gullible, being a twit. And... Uh, we, we shouldn't be twits. Um, this twit has now lost his place in his notes. Which, which verse was that? Oh, right. Ah, gotcha. Right. Verse 20 now. I've got... I've got like this... You know, all these numbers are going in and out of focus. And that, right, okay. Uh, verse 20. The poor are shunned even by their neighbours, but the rich have many friends. Isn't that true? That's sad. Yeah, I mean, that's the reverse of what it is in the kingdom. Christians aren't like that, are they? Well, sadly, they were. And again, our friend James had to address it. Do you remember? He used to say, you know, like, poor man comes into the assembly and, oh, you sit, sit down there on the floor somewhere. Rich man comes in, gold rings, and perhaps through his nose, like the pig in the proverb we saw earlier, and uh, comes into the meeting, everyone's, oh, you have the seat of honour, blah, blah, blah. You know, the fact that we're Christians doesn't mean that we're free of this sort of thing, but we ought to be free of this sort of thing. You know, it should make no difference to us whether someone is poor or rich. So, I mean, if you've got, if you've got a Robin Reliant out there, you should be loved. And if you've got a Ferrari out there, you should be loved as well. Now, the converse of this, and this, this is something else as well, that it, it could get reversed too much. Because in some churches, and I hope it would never be said of, of, of here that it could happen, but if, if the Lord, well, the Lord does indeed bring people into the kingdom who have Ferraris because they are loaded. 
And there are other people who they become Christians and they're not loaded, and the Lord leads them into great riches. And so very possibly they have Ferraris or Rollers. And we've got to make sure it's absolutely true that if ever very rich people came into the church, that, that there would be no prejudice against them because of their riches. You see, that there, there could be that subtle reversal. There must never be any prejudice against people because they're poor. Crumbs, none of you would like me. But, equally, it must be true that you must never be prejudiced against the rich, which means that you won't like me when I get home tonight and open their boxes. You see. So, therefore, we've got to make sure that that doesn't get reversed, that they're the rich or poor. Equality, absolute equality, vitally important. Right, um, chapter 15, verse 1. I love this one. A gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. There can be times when maybe someone, you know, sort of like is at you. You know, you've done something, you've upset them or whatever, and, or, or they come up to you and they're, you know, and out, out it comes, all right? And you've got two chances. You can respond with love, which might well diffuse the situation. Not necessarily, but it might well, and that's what we ought to do. But it's guaranteed that if someone comes up to you snarling and you snarl back, it's going to make it worse, isn't it? So there's uh, no question that a gentle answer turns away wrath. And the reason that if someone comes up to me snarling or comes up to you snarling and that we respond with a gentle answer, well, that's the holiness of God in our hearts, isn't it? Whereas if we respond with sin, well, we give back as good as we're getting, don't we? And of course, you know, in the Bible, it's very clear that don't return evil for evil. Return good for evil. Someone might come up and give you a mouthful. Love them back. I mean, you know, you might have to say, you know, you know, hang on, calm down. But the, the point is, your attitude will be one of love and gentleness. It won't, you know, you, you won't be angry back. That, that's the point. You won't snarl back. Um, verse 16 and 17. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. Now that's true, isn't it? You know, that's, that's true. I, I, I mean, there's a million material things, including meat, including food, that, 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 that if to have them means compromising our discipleship, they're not worth having. They're not worth having. You know, and that's, that's, that's so true. Chapter 16. Verse 8. Oh, this very much along the same lines. Better a little with righteousness than much gained with injustice. You know? Better to have nothing than to get something through injustice. God hates injustice. <clears throat> he is a God of justice. And so must we be. Um, you know, backhanders, you name it. There's a hundred ways to end up getting something unjustly. We mustn't ever touch it with a barge pole. Verse 16. How much better to get wisdom than gold, to choose understanding rather than silver? So there you go. Someone says, look, you know, I'll give you a tenner to miss the Bible study tonight. And you'll say, what? What? Couldn't possibly. What? Miss all that wisdom that Beresford will be sharing with us? No, no, no. No, take the money back. You see? Because there's no contest, is there? Absolutely none. Um... Verse 18, the highway of the upright avoids evil. He who guards his way guards his life. 
pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And uh, we, we, we know that's true. And then, better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. So it's better to side with the oppressed and uh, pay the price for doing that than to, to keep your nice, country, you know, comfy lifestyle if that means you're siding with the oppressor. You know, social justice, just, just really important. Right, chapter 17, and um, verse 15. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. And that, that is sometimes a real definition of sin. Because sin reverses everything. It makes good bad and bad good. You know, calls good evil and evil good. And, um, you know, and of course here, you know, to acquit the guilty and condemn the innocent. I mean, God hates it. Because that is what sin and rebellion always does. And um, we were talking with Andy earlier about the way that, you know, so, so often, you know, sort of like, you know, you know, people, they end up in a situation where, you know, sort of like, if, if they took a stand, they could ensure that the innocent have indicated, but fear of man or whatever, they, they keep quiet. And, and, and so the innocent end up condemned as guilty. And it's that, you know, that, that saying that all that's needed for evil men to prosper is for good men to do nothing. Because in a sinful world, I mean, the bias is always towards the innocent getting condemned and the guilty getting away with it. That, that, that is the bias in a sinful world. And so often, you know, sort of Christians remain silent where us speaking or doing something might be the thing that prevents that from happening. But it's, it's so easy to just be quiet and stick to our quiet life and, uh, you know, stuff like that. It's, uh, it's sad. It's, it's very sad when that happens. Um, verse 27 and 28. A man of knowledge uses words with restraint and a man of understanding is even-tempered. And uh, that's, that's, that's true. That's maturity, that's self-control, using words with restraint and being even-tempered, you know, rather than, than responding in anger and, and self-defense and pouring out words that, that, that later have to be undone, they have to be unsaid, they have to be repented of, even-temperedness. Even and uh, this... The next one in verse 20, I, I like this because uh, I've experienced this in the past. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've found myself ending up disillusioned. And uh, it's just, even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. Now, I've, I've experienced this sometimes when I've observed maybe quiet people. And, uh, you know, and sort of like I've observed them and they're quiet and, you know, maybe when other people are a little bit agitated or there's a lot of words going around, they'll be fairly quiet. And, and I've ended up, you know, sort of thinking now there's a, a silent wisdom there. There's a quiet maturity there. And then the day has come when these people stay silent no longer and they've opened their mouths and utter, utter folly has poured out. And the fact that they were so quiet was simply covering the fact that they were fools. See? Full of folly. Now, this isn't saying that all quiet people are fools, of course. 
you know, wisdom will sometimes tend towards quietness. But do you see the point? There are, you know, there are times when, um, you know, sort of like uh, if, you know, people who are foolish end up being thought of as being wise just because they haven't said anything. But the moment they say something, you realise, oh, no, it wasn't wisdom after all, because what pours out is a, you know, just absolute silliness. Um, chapter 20. Only another handful now, getting, getting towards the end. Uh, chapter 20, verse 4. A sluggard does not plough in season, so at harvest time he looks but finds nothing. Uh, that makes sense, doesn't it? You know, if one doesn't put one's heart into something, then obviously you're not going to get a return. And the picture here is of someone who's sort of like, there's harvest time and he's looking at his field and there's nothing there. Because when it was seed time, he, he didn't get up and go out and sow the seed. And, and you know, so there's a, you know, a, a you know, picture there. And uh, I have more to say about that, but I can't be bothered. Um, chapter 22. Oh, it's coming thick and fast tonight, isn't it? Chapter 22, verse 3. Um, I've picked this one because it's the closest I can find to biblical justification for being a coward, and I'm a coward. No. A prudent man sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. Now, I mean, obviously, no, this, this, this isn't talking about, you know, obviously, we mustn't be cowards. But uh, there is a kind of, uh, you know, there are times when, you know, this is fools rushing in where angels fear to tread, isn't it? Um, there's a lot of kind of like what, what looks outwardly sometimes like bravery. And, um, you know, you might sort of think of someone, oh, he's, so, oh, he's been very brave in what he says. Oh, you know, one can almost, you know, people who are, are direct and, you know, I mean, sort of nothing wrong with that per se. But I've certainly seen instances when people have said some fairly courageous things in some difficult situations and as I've got to know them better I've discovered that they're not courageous people at all they just like a fight do you know what I mean you know relish it beware Christians who enjoy confrontation now there are times when confrontation has to occur but we've seen it in this fellowship haven't we people who they're never happier than when they're correcting the church, or where they're correcting their brother, or where they're saying the most controversial thing that could be said at that moment. Um, or, you know, sort of like they see a potentially dodgy situation, which, which, which would have an elder on his knees crying out to God for help and wisdom. What on earth do I do? And these people, they're, they're right in that they can't wait, they're in the thick of it, stirring it up. See, that is being simple, that is folly. You know, the, 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 the prudent man knows when to step back and take refuge and just take stock of the situation, you know, before you go in and do any false heroics. And uh, so, so that's an important principle there, um, you know, because, I mean, it is, is possible to um, end up doing things that look brave and, 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 and at the end of the day it's only a kind of a showing off. It's a drama thing. It's a, hey, look at me. It's a dramatic effect. And that's, that's, that's not good. It's folly. It's um, absolute folly. Uh, chapter 27, verse 5. I like this one. Got to be careful of this one. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. And that's absolutely true. But the reason I say we've got to be careful of it, all right, is that uh, easy to turn this into a charter for bashing people all the time. 
But, it, but nevertheless, it is true. If you care, correction is going to be part and parcel of your relationships. But again, you know, sort of like, beware correcting at the drop of a hat. You know, and sort of like, you know, sort of like, you know, you've, you've, you've gone to correct a brother in love, of course. And as you leave him, lying on the floor, spiritually speaking, bleeding, you mutter on your way out, better is open rebuke and hidden love, as, as if that makes it all right. You know, then the brother lying on the floor and, you know, he's been nehemiah you know, well and truly, as it were. And, um, you know, but it is true, though, that, you know, that, that, that open rebuke in a loving relationship, correction is going to be there. But, um, you know, and, and, and that's good to realise, but obviously with, you know, a hesitancy. Correction should be done with a kind of a holy a hesitancy. Not, not, not kind of, you know, going all around the bushes all the time. But, you know, but people who just sit in there correct at the drop of a hat as if it was, oh, well, you know, sort of like, you know, do you know what the time is? Do you know that that's a sin? You know, it's not, it needs to come out of a relationship, a bit more, bit more loving than that. Um, especially if it's me you're correcting. <laughs> um, right, 28, um, verse 9. See, I like this because this, this one is nice feet on the ground stuff. If anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. And that, that's the theme that runs throughout the Bible. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And uh, yeah, remember, there's that, that, that scorching passage in, 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 in Amos, when uh, you know, sort of like a certain amount of, of orthodoxy was amongst the people, but there's a lot of social injustice and stuff like that, and they were oppressing each other, and, you know, and, and, and through Amos, the Lord thunders out, I hate, I despise your feasts. To the sound of your singing, I will not listen. You know, so their holy biblical festivals, God hated them. Because it was, it was show. It, it, it was outward. It was, you know, like the old whitewashed tomb. It was nicely painted on the outside and looked all very vibrant and, and alive, but, but inside it was all dead men's bones. And, um, you know, and if we turn a deaf ear to the law, our prayers are detestable. Now, I mean, you know, it's not to say that just, you know, I mean, obviously the, the whole time the Lord is kind of bringing us into compliance with, with the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. But what this is talking about here is that when there's any, a, any willful, a real willful turning away from, you know, from what God is saying, then, then that, you know, the relationship is severed. You know, and uh, at a time like that, you know, do you remember, um, there's the, the story in the Old Testament when a, uh, uh, when Joshua led the people against Jericho and, and they got Jericho without a fight. The only, the only fight going into the promised land that wasn't a fight, God did it, all right, Jericho. And God said, all the spoil from Jericho, it's for me. You can have the rest, but Jericho, that's for me. Which was fair enough because God, God knocked the walls down, Israel didn't. Some of the other towns, they, they used their swords. So God said, right, you can have the booty. But when it came to Jericho, God did that, and that was the first fruits. And God says, I'll have all of that. That's devoted for me. You remember there was Achan. He saw Babylonian garments and stuff like that, and he, he, he took some of the plunder. And, uh, and then they went against Ai, which was a real, real little place. You know, that's like having, having got victory in London. You know, you then come against Chipping Onga, <laughs> and Chipping Onga won. And, and, you know, and Joshua's, hey, what's happening? You know, why is the Lord... 
blah, blah, blah. And the Lord revealed himself to Joshua. He says, wherefore Christ thou unto me? He says, what are you praying for? This isn't the time to pray. Achan sinned. Go and sort the sin out. You see? So, you know, we're kidding ourselves if, you know, sort of like, we all know, don't we, that there are times when, when, when our outward spirituality is increasing in direct proportion to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we're trying to avoid. We all know that, don't we? You know, like, God, God's got his finger on this thing. And so I decide, right, now's the time to really sort my prayer life out, you know. As if I really work at that, then God will go away, this thing that he's pointing out in me that I don't want him to point out. Prayer can, you know, should never be used to try and avoid what God's doing. And, uh, yeah, so anyone who turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. Uh, verse 23, another one. He who rebukes a man will in the end gain more favour than he who has a flattering tongue. That's back to the, you know, hidden, uh, open rebuke is better than hidden love. So chuck, chuck that one in. Um, la last chapter of the Proverbs um, of Solomon 29 and uh, verse 11. Very much on a theme we've already covered. A fool gives full vent to his anger but a wise man keeps himself under control. So that's very much repetition there, but um, something we need to uh, repeat to ourselves. A fool gives vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. Some of these, you know, so I'm you know, not particularly into memorising verses of scripture because I'm not, not, not that good at it, but some of these are good to, to log in. And, and, and there are times when just every now and then, just read the book of Proverbs. You know, just, it, it's, it's so good, you know, because it's so pithy, it's so succinct. It, it sums up in, in little, short, you know, easy-to-remember points, and it's, it's a superb book, it really is. Uh, verse 20. Do you see a man who speaks in haste? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Absolutely true. Verse 25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. And we know that a fear of man is a snare. It doesn't matter what people think. If we've got God's smile, it doesn't matter if we get man's frown. Now again, one can't you, you know, sort of this verse can get used for people to do a individualistic thing, you know, or, you know, so that that doesn't take any account of what anyone thinks. Remember there's another uh, thing that Solomon said that in an abundance of counsellors is safety. Yes, it's right, you know, I mean we we need to take on board what other people think. But what this is saying, the fear of man, is that even when we know what is right, that often we think, I know it's right, but, but these people or whoever will think badly of me, and so we step back. It doesn't matter. If you know something's right, do it. It doesn't matter what people think. It matters what God thinks. So that's, that's fundamentally the, the Proverbs of, of Solomon. Chapter 30 um, are more Proverbs, but they're not Solomon's. Um, they're, they're, they're by a bloke called Agur, A-G-U-R, about whom we know absolutely nothing, but they're his sayings. Uh, just, just to give you an example of, you know, just, just one example, v v verse 32. If you have played the fool and exalted yourself, or if you have planned evil, clap your hand over your mouth. For as churning the milk produces butter, and as twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. Um, basically, what he's saying there is know when to shut up. Basically, know when to stop. This is, there's a time for, well, hush my mouth. See? 
Because if you keep going, you're twisting a nose until it bleeds, or you're going to churn the, the, the milk until it becomes butter. It's just the time to stop. Call it a day there and then. Right. And uh, then in chapter 31, we have the sayings of King Lemuel. A again, of whom we know absolutely nothing, except that, that chapter 31 has got his sayings in. Uh, just little dippy, uh, verse 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what the law decrees and deprived all the oppressed of their rights. And then, uh, give beer to those who are perishing, wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. And um, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. You know, obviously there's a real kind of a, you know, that kings, those in authority, their duty, their responsibility is to care for the oppressed. You know, so, so kings aren't just there to lord it over people, they're there to make sure that everyone is looked after, especially the poor and needy. And then from verse 10 down to verse 31, which takes us absolutely to the end um, of Proverbs and remembering the earlier theme of comparing wisdom to, you know, sort of like, a, you know, a woman who's beautiful and, you know, your wife and whom you desire, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the, the last verses speak of, uh, you know, define the biblical wife, you know, the, the, the wife of noble character. Um, let's, let's, um, let's just pick some of it out. A, a wife of noble character, this is verse 10, who can find? She's worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She's like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. Now, thus far, you could get the picture that the wife is only there in regards to just looking after the family. Now, yeah, that is certainly what, you know, sort of like a wife ought to do. But listen to this. Um, she considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Now, the sad thing is that in the kingdom of God today, you tend to get two extremes. That people who believe that, that, that wives are in submission to their husbands and that the husband is the head of the wife as Jesus is the head of the husband. Um, and that's right, and we would absolutely agree with that. But can often have a picture, you know, of like little wifey doing the dishes. And, you know, let, let not her speak unless it's to do with, you know, doing the dishes or, you know, that, that kind of thing. And, uh, I mean, one bloke I know, and he's, he's my age. I mean, I'm, talking, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about some, some old boy who's, who's 75 years old. But, you know, one bloke, you know, he, he does not let his wife have a checkbook because he believes it is wrong for her to have any influence in regards to the money at all. And his reason for doing it is he believes that is wrong. Now, that is, this is a far cry from that. Here we have the wife of a husband out doing business. So, you know, sort of like you tend to find either little wifey doing the dishes or in the movement very much of the Christian feminists, the idea that, you know, virtually the function of the man and the woman is interchangeable, which it definitely isn't. Definitely isn't. And, uh, you know, but in these verses, you know, you, you, you certainly get an excellent picture of what the, the Christian wife ought to be. And, you know, sort of let, let, let every Christian 
wife read these verses or every Christian woman who's not married yet read these verses because it's very much the model um, for how the Lord wants them to be. And, um, you know, so boom, boom, there's, there's Proverbs for you. Right, well, we'll now move on to um, Ecclesiastes. Um, by Solomon again. Um, won't take too long to do. Um, the actual Ecclesiastes, the name of the book, Ecclesiastes is a, a Greek word. And it, it's, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, which is kohelet, which, which simply means a teacher. So it, it means teacher or, or, or preacher. That's, that's what the, the title of the, the book means. And uh, from, from the verse, first verse again, you see that it's, it's Solomon. Now, it's, it's a book that presents some people with difficulties. And uh, the reason is that at first glance, it's, uh, some of it is very unbiblical. Um, go to chapter 3 and find verse 18. And um, let's read this. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that may, they may see they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. All is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? And that's not very biblical, that isn't. You know, I mean, that, that is saying there's no difference at all between a man and a beast. And of course, we know from Genesis there is. Uh, go, go to chapter 9, verse 5. Um, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward and even the memory of them is forgotten. But that's not biblical either, because that's saying there isn't an afterlife. So what, what, what's going on here? And you see, it's because you get things like that expressed in Ecclesiastes that, 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 that people get a bit confused by it. And because it's unbiblical. You know, you've got an unbiblical book in the Bible. So I think, wow, what, what, what on earth is going on here? And of course, there's a key to understanding it. And the key, I put it to you, is in fact Solomon's own personal history. Because you'll remember that due to the fact he had so many wives, and a lot of them were Canaanites and, and you know, blah, 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 he, he fell into idolatry, and um, he, he fell away from the Lord. Now, what we have here is Solomon writing very late in life. So this is, you know, sort of like he's an old man now. And he's come back to the Lord. So he's an old man, and he's come back to the Lord, having backslidden for many, many years. And what he's doing is he's reviewing the philosophy and the outlook that he held through his years of backsliding. So what he's doing in Ecclesiastes, he's outlining what you might call naturalistic philosophy. He was saying, if you look at life, if you ask questions about life, if you decide what is life all about, and you do that without God, without the, the God of the Bible, whom we know to be true, then this is what you're going to be coming up with. So what he's doing, he's outlining natural reason. He's looking at the condition of the natural man without God. And one of the key phrases that you get throughout the book is, under the sun, under the sun under the sun, and that all the observations are based on the assumption that the only experience that this guy's got is that which happens under the sun. 
And of course the point is that if you had a revelation from God, that comes, as it were, from above the sun. Can you see the difference? Whereas here, he's looking back on his years of backsliding, and the only way he could think was that of basing everything purely on that which was under the sun. Because he was trying to understand life, he was coming up with a philosophy, if you like, that was devoid of a revelation that comes from God. And um, in, in, in chapter 1, and, and the first three verses, if we actually read it, 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 it sets the book's theme. Now, we'll just read uh, the first two verses. The words of the teacher, that's the word Ecclesiastes, the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem, so we know it's Solomon, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Or in the King James, it's vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, but the same thing. And it's, it's, it's talking about the absolute meaningless, meaninglessness, the futility, the emptiness, the vanity of human life apart from God. Can you see? But you've got to cut God out of it. So therefore, because God is cut out of it, meaninglessness is all you've got. And the rest of the book, basically, is that he takes that theme um, and he proves it and demonstrates it from every aspect of human life and experience. And that's what the book is. He goes through various aspects of human life. And what he's saying is, taking as a hypothesis that under the sun is all you've got, there's no... God, as revealed in the scripture, he's out of it, because I was backslidden, so he wasn't in my thinking, all right? Given that all you've got is human life and religion and under the sun, then in every area of life you're going to find meaninglessness, and I'm going to prove it to you. And so he just goes through every aspect of life, demonstrating that it's ultimately meaningless if the God of the Bible is not involved in your life. It's as simple as that. And, uh, like, you know, in, in chapter 1 and from verse 4 to 11, um, he, he, he demonstrates it from the angle of everything being impermanent. I mean, you know, he, he talks about, um, you know, sort of what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? No, it was here long ago. It was always here before our time. And what he does there is he's saying, look, life is, you know, sort of like nature just continues around, the wheel turns full circle, nothing new ever happens, the same thing day in, day out, an endless round of repetitive comings and goings. And he says, is there any meaning in that? No. You know, sort of like, you know, the acorn falls from the oak tree, it goes in the ground, it dies, and it grows into an oak tree, and it's got acorns, and it drops the acorn into the ground, and a tree grows, you see, on and on and on, in a meaningless, continuous spiral. Um, in, in verses 12 to 18, um, he demonstrates it, you know, from, you know, the aspect of man's wisdom and intellectual endeavours, that it doesn't matter how much thinking you do, how much philosophy you do, at the end of the day, if God's not in it, it's, it's absolute futility. Um, in chapter 2, he deals, firstly, with pleasure. And he comes to the conclusion that pleasure, well, it's nice, but it's futile, it's meaningless. If that's all you've got, you see, because you get bored of pleasure, See, pleasure can't go on forever, so he dismisses that, he says that that is meaningless, and uh, then he, 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 he brings in wisdom, and he says, well, how about wisdom? Is, is there meaning in that? And he concludes, well, if there's no God, it's meaninglessness, because the wisdom might as well be folly. What's the difference? It could be right, it could be wrong. At the end of the day, what's the difference? If God's not there, what difference does it make? So it's meaningless. So w wisdom out the window. 
you know, man can say, well, we've got this great wisdom, philosophy, great culture, blah, blah, blah. But he's saying it's meaningless because it's just part of nature, the wheels turning, and that's all you've got, absolutely meaningless. And then he deals with toil and work, and he says you get up in the morning, you work, you go to bed, you get up in the morning, you work, you go, endless cycle. So even toil and work, and his conclusion is that all, all you can do is get on, just try and enjoy it. He says, because it's all you've got, it's absolutely meaningless. Uh, chapter 3 reiterates what's gone before, and you get a time to be born, a time to die, a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, a time for that, you know, and um, and he, he kind of brings in the fact that there's only one thing you can actually be certain of, and that, that your time to be born is going to be followed by your time of dying. And the only thing you'd be certain of is you're going to die. Well, he says, what meaning has life got? Because you're going to die. It's meaningless, he says. Uh, chapter 4, uh, he, he covers oppression and human inequality. He says it's not even as if human life is fun. He says there's wars, there's tension, there's oppression. He says, you know, so I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy. And he says, so many people end up lonely. Uh, you know, there are people who, you know, sort of just, you know, they end up at the bottom of the pile. So what's their life worth? And the point is, you don't know if it's going to happen to you. So it's all meaningless, he says. Chapter 5, he deals with, um, you know, religiosity. He deals with religion and uh, concludes that that is completely meaning, you know, sort of meaningless as well. And he deals with riches. And he says, well, that is meaningless as well, because he says, the point is, it doesn't matter how much you get, you want more. So the more you get, the more you want. The more you've got, the more you want, the more you haven't got. So you're getting poorer. So he says, it's meaningless. Because you want to be rich, the richer you get, the more you realise you haven't got, you're getting poor in your attitude, even though you're getting richer. And he says, well, it's meaningless. Absolute vanity. So there's no answer there. Um, chapter 6, uh, he goes back to the fact that life is meaningless because the one thing that you know is going to happen to you, you're going to die. It is life's one certainty that you're going to die. So he says, absolutely meaningless. Chapter 7, he then, and this is clever, he then goes on about the meaningless of wise sayings and proverbs. And he's writing a book of them. But he says all the wise sayings and proverbs in the world are absolutely meaningless if they're trying to explain a life without God, where all you've got is that which is under the sun. And then he deals with being righteous. Goes back to that, he says, well, you'd be righteous. He said, but what's the difference? Why not be wicked? In the end, you're going to die. So you're the one who's being righteous or wicked, you're going to die. Then here's all the other people who you've either been righteous to or wicked to. What are they going to do? They're going to die. Is anyone going to remember whether you were righteous or wicked? No. Are you going to remember if you were righteous or wicked? No. What's the point? He says it's all meaningless. Are you getting the drift of Ecclesiastes? Um, chapter 8, he, he, he goes into political and social matters, saying that obviously you can try and do your bit there, you know, but he says at the end of the day it's all meaningless because everything is uncertain. You can set about your reforms, but you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And don't forget, one thing we do know, you're going to die. <laughs> So what difference does it make? And then in chapter 9, he really bangs the nail home and, and, and he says, there's one thing you know for sure, you're going to die. <laughs> and therefore everything is meaningless. And then he goes on about the vagaries of chance and circumstance. And he talks about that, chance. You know, life's a lottery. There's only one thing you can be certain of, you're going to die. You just don't know what number you're going to draw that's going to make you die. I mean, are you going to walk under a bus or are you going to get cancer? 
It's a lottery, but you do know that you're going to die. And then in verses 10 and 12, he, he, he comes out with various proverbs covering things about wisdom and, and folly and, and being young and being old and stuff like that. And uh, if, 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 if you read actually chapter 12 and verse 8, which, which actually sums it all up, as he, he's now drawing his, his argument to a close and, and he's coming to, to the end of it. And um, in, in chapter 12 and verse 8, we read this. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. Which is back to where he started. And that's the whole point of his argument. He's gone full circle. But from verse 9 to verse 14, then he gives the answer to the dilemma. Because what is the answer to the dilemma of the meaningless of life? It's knowing that God has made you. It's not rejecting him anymore. And if you allow God in, if you start to realise that you are created by the Creator, then life has meaning. Therefore, in verse 9, not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright right and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. And he says, there is the exact opposite of meaninglessness. There is no chance. You see? So, you pay your money and take your choice. If you reject God, life is meaningless. But if you follow the Lord, then it's the exact opposite. So that is what Ecclesiastes is all about. A philosophical statement of the vanity of life. And of course the point is, if there's no God, or if the God of the Bible doesn't exist, then there's no difference between you and the ape. Don't think evolution is new, it's not. It's been around for thousands of years ago, uh, you know, for thousands of years, Solomon here brings it into his argument. See? But if there is a God, then we are completely different to the beast. Can you see the, the whole point? We've got the price, you can get rid of God if you want, turn your back on him, but the price you pay is a meaningless life. And of course we know you're going to end up in a lake of fire. But meaning and purpose can only be a reality when you realise that you're created by a creator God. Right, boom, boom, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs now, won't take long. Um, song of Songs, a song, a love song, that's what it is. Could have been written by Barry Manilow, I suppose, but it wasn't. It was written by Solomon, but it's that idea, it's a Barry Manilow song. It's a, a pure love song, all right. Um, and it, it, it's a song in praise of... Uh, now, remember, Solomon had loads of wives, all right? But this is a song written in praise of his favourite wife, and she was a Shulamite woman. And uh, the way that it's, it's done is that you've got three parties who speak in this song. Um, you've got the king, that's Solomon himself, you've got the bride, that's the Shulamite woman, and uh, you've got a general chorus who are referred to as the daughters of Jerusalem. And so as the song progresses, or like a, a play progresses, that the various personnel speak, as it were, in, 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 in turn. Now, what we've got to realise is, is that the Song of Solomon is a straight glorification of wedded love. It's a song in praise of, and it celebrates, the sexual union between a man and a woman. 
It is an unashamedly erotic song celebrating the true romance of sexuality between a husband and wife. It celebrates sexuality without reserve. And although its idioms and its picture language are a bit odd to us, because after all we're not ancient Hebrews, nevertheless its picture language is quite graphic. But of course there is nothing pornographic about it, because it is celebrating sexuality in its true holy context, the context of husband and wife. Now obviously that is the prime reason for it being in the Bible. It's just a song celebrating love between a man and a woman. But obviously it goes without saying that secondarily and given that marriage is a picture of the mystery between Christ and the church, it obviously goes without saying that, you know, place Jesus as the, the bride, uh, the, the groom here, the king, and that us as Christians as the bride, the bride, well, well, boom, yeah, there's loads and loads of picture language that you can take out of it and, and say, oh, and this is a picture of that in the Christian life, and this is a picture of that, and that's absolutely fine, superb, that's all there. But the most important thing is to realise that it is primarily in praise of sexuality. And that's important. God is not a prude. He invented sex. He's got nothing against it whatsoever. It's Satan who hates sex. And that is why Satan sullies it with immorality and pornography, licentiousness. It is, God is not a prude in any way at all. Now, it's going to take minutes to go through this, because at the end of the day, you've just got to read it. It's poetry. But in, in chapter one, it is largely the, the bride speaking of her love for the king. So it's the Shulamite woman singing the praises of Solomon and, uh, you know, how wonderful she thinks he is. And, um, and you get replies from both the king and the chorus. And uh, in, in, in chapter 2, the bride speaks of her delight in the king's love for her. She, she's expressing poetically how glad she is that he loves her in such a way. And of course you can symbolise that. We're glad of how God loves us. Uh, that's brilliant. But primarily it's husband and wife. Uh, then in, in, in chapter 3 is in two parts. And she has a dream, and she dreams that the king disappears. She wakes up and he's gone. They're on their honeymoon. She wakes up and he's gone. And so she goes off to find him and she finds him, and she's delighted. And then the second half is that you get a, a bridal procession and you know, and then all the you know the the, the the you know all the crowds gather to celebrate the wedding and, and that and they go into the palace garden. Uh, then in, in chapter 4, the king speaks and he, he adores his bride and pours out loads of mush about her and, and, and then she invites him into her garden of marital delights and the imagery there is, is obvious and, and so off, off they go. Um, in chapter 5, she dreams again that he disappears and, and she, she you know, sort of goes looking for him and she speaks out her devotion to him and how much she loves him. Um, in, in chapter 6, the king speaks and he sings out the praises of, you know, how he feels about her. And remember that, that you know, that, that, you know, that the Lord loves us to bits as well. You know, I mean, he loves us. It's not just we love him. He loves us. And then in, in chapter 7, they tell of their mutual love for each other. So it's a kind of a, a, a duet there. And, and, and then in chapter 8, the whole thing climaxes into the most unbelievable mush that you've just got to read for yourselves. And it's absolutely wonderful. It's brilliant. It's lovely. It's, it's super. And uh, I, I say that as a, a dedicated romantic. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's all we need to say about the Song of Solomons. It's that simple. All you've got to do is read it. But, yeah, you can have a lot of fun taking out of the symbolism various things about our walk with the Lord, and that's great. And, obviously, one could have a whole study or have a study on it, blah, blah, blah. 
you know, but primarily that's what it is. It's just the picture of the sexual union between husband and wife and uh, all the symbolism that is in there. So that, that's fairly straightforward. And, uh, well, what can you say to that? I think we'll just say that we'll uh, end it there. He here endeth the wisdom literature. <laughs>